turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Ephesians chapter 4 for our reading of our text this afternoon. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 24. So let's hear now the word as it was intended for us, which is delivered by God through the Spirit of God, inerrant, infallible, entirely sufficient, and without error. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and you put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Amen. You may be seated. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask now that you would oversee, that you would guide, and that you would direct the preaching of your word, despite the overwhelming fallibility and imperfection of your servant, the preacher. Lord, would you and your kindness overcome the distractions in all of our hearts and in all of our minds? Lord, we are ashamed that we come to your worship, to come in your gathering, and we're thinking of so many other things, things that aren't even necessarily sinful on their own. Lord, would you just break that cycle of thought right now? And would your word penetrate deeply, not only into our, heart, our, our minds, but into our hearts and that it would come out of our hands as we live the lives you've called us to live. And Lord, these deeply practical verses, would they take root in us that we might be changed for the better and for your glory. All we want to do is see you glorified. All we want to do is see our lost neighbors saved. And all we want to do ourselves as believers is grow in Christ's likeness. So would you aid that? Would you guide and direct and empower that effort today through the mere preaching of your word for a handful of minutes? We ask this all in Christ's name, amen. <clears throat> well, in chapter four, you guys know we've been picking up in the book of Ephesians in the practical section, the section of the book that gets into how shall we then live? And we saw in verses one through six, the reality of the unity of the church, that the church is unified. If it is in Christ, if it is the church, then it is one unit. Nevertheless, in verses seven through 12, there is a diversity of gifts that God does indeed gift individual members of the body of Christ, his son, uniquely. And how do we work with those gifts? How do they come together? How do they edify the church? We saw that in verses seven through 12. And then last week in verses 13 through 16, we saw the command there to be unified as we mature. That was the resounding note we left off last week was the maturity of the church to grow up in that. So the next logical question is, okay, the command is clear that we must mature. How do we do that? That's what we're at 
this morning, this afternoon. Verses 17 through 24 are the first steps, two-part steps in practically pursuing unified maturity as a church. It's just two sentences in the Greek, verses 17 to 24 is a negative sentence, which is like, don't do. And then verses 20 through 24 is one sentence positive and it's do, these are the things we do. So Paul does this by juxtaposing the life and the mind of an unconverted person with the life and the mind of a converted person. We need this today. We need this juxtaposition. We needed to go through this again desperately. We need a metric to run the daily data that we intake through. We need a sieve. If we will ever mature spiritually, we must know what is true and what is a lie. See, even as Calvinists who believe in the depravity of man, we still think that there are good people outside the church. It's most evident in things like politics or celebrity or athletics, acquaintances, neighbors, things like that. Like your favorite musician has a hard heart towards God. Your favorite politician hates God. Your favorite neighbor, that, that person that you think is just so great, that has a darkened mind, according to these texts. Yet we often treat them as if they don't. That, that, that doesn't exist. So it skews our thinking and it leads us into unnecessary states of being. When we finally see that, oh, we see that come out, we're shocked, whereas we shouldn't be. See, Paul wants to make sure that we know how hopelessly backward the lives and the minds of the unconverted are in verses 17 through 19. You've got to, to know that. They live according to lies and they love it because failing to recognize that will perpetually stunt your spiritual growth. And Paul's after in this section, growing up and maturing spiritually. He also wants to remind us and remind the church at Ephesus about their conversion, that that was you, verses 17 through 19, but that's not you anymore because verses 20 and 21 happened to you. You were saved, you were born again, you were made new. You now know Christ. And then lastly, he gives the new commands that we now follow as the converted. So the unconversion, unconverted mind to conversion to the converted mind in verses 22 through 24. This is how we begin thinking and moving towards maturity. That's how our text breaks down. So we look at verses 17 through 19 of the unconverted life and there's three marks of an unconverted mind. The first is the futility of it. Unbelief is futile. Verse 17, so this I say, and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind. That word in the Greek for futility is a word that means without value or use. So futility, that word that Paul's using means without value and without use. The unbelieving mind is so corrupted by sin that it is futile. Their thought process is useless to bring about good or to bring about life, bring about righteousness or holiness. Their worldview has no value because the word futile means that. But I mean, Paul, these are heavy words. How can you just drop these in? Partly because of the principle that hard words make for soft hearts and soft words make for hard hearts. 
So Paul does this under the leadership of the Spirit. And in leading the Ephesian church to spiritual maturity, square one has to be established. You can't know how to get to where you wanna go if you don't know where you are, right? Every time you open up your phone and type in the maps, what does it say? What's your starting point? Because that affects the way that you get to the end point, right? And there's the, uh, this, and you get into the worldview area of this. There's an old documentary about um, intelligent design and evolutionism. It's called Expelled. Ben Stein's the guy in it. And it's all about how uh, academia has completely shut out any kind of concept or con- uh, construct of intelligent design or of a creator in any kind of process. It's all this evolutionary stuff. And then it gets to the end. And after a couple of hours of interviewing all these professors, guys like double PhDs in physics and all this stuff, he gets to the end and then he just shows the futility of their mind when he says, okay, but how did everything get here? What started the spinning ball of dust? And then you see these guys who have been pontificating, waxing eloquently on all this scientific stuff and they got nothing. One guy just goes, well, protein's on the back of crystals. And he goes, well, where did the crystals come from? He goes, protein's on the back of crystals. And he just keeps reiterating it. A guy with a PhD in physics. If you don't know what square one is, then why would we do anything else, follow anything else that you have to say? So Paul has to establish that here with us. If the destination is joy, peace, truth, life, rightness with God, then we have to start where the actual starting place is. We have to start where God starts. So in pursuing spiritual maturity, if that's our goal, step one is not living like the Gentiles. That's what he says in verse 17. Walk no longer as the Gentiles. When you see Gentiles there, you just read unbelievers, pagans, because their way of life is futile. It's worthless. You have to hear it. It has no value for the life of the church. Everything out there has no value for the life of the church. Paul's saying this is square one. This is where we have to start. And contrary to popular thinking, we don't need to look at the LGBTQ community to understand fellowship. We don't need to look at the military to understand leadership. We don't need to, have to look at nightclubs to learn about joy and happiness. We have no reason to go talk to the Mormons about outreach because all of their minds are futile. According to verse 17, they have nothing to offer. And if their minds are futile, then all their structures are worthless. See, Christian, if you will be spiritually mature, it won't be because of anything you learned from worldlings. And it won't be because of anything that you kept that you just valued so much and was really worthwhile from your unregenerate life before Christ. None of that carries over. None of that has any staying power. It will only be, if you will be spiritually mature, it will only be because of the spirit of God working through the word of God. Because the reality is, is that mind that used to have and that the world currently has is darkness. Verse 18, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. Darkened is the same word in Revelation 9, chapter two to describe the bottomless pit that darkness of a bottomless pit, their understanding, their mental processes, they, meaning all unbelievers, are so filled with black smoke that they can't see the truth. They can't see it, they can't understand it, they can't comprehend it. We do not imitate people who can't think straight. That's a pretty good practice to live your life by. You can't think straight, then I don't do what you do. We don't 
get marriage or parenting advice from unbelievers. We don't get our understanding of what the good life is. Ah, that's the sweet spot. That's what it really means to be living from pagans. We, we don't. Their ignorance is so severe, according to verse 18, that it excludes them from true life. You see, this they're excluded from the life of God. There is no life of God in them. Whatever it is you think that they're offering you, it is not the life of God. They are ignorant of God. This includes your favorite conservative news groups and cultural commentaries. Do not make me list them because it won't be happy. But if they're not in Christ, then they necessarily have deluded and ignorant understanding of life. And what does it say? They have hard hearts. Verse 18, the hardness of their heart. When you hear hard heart, if you've been in the church or grew up in the church, where does your mind immediately go back to? Exodus 4 through 14 with Pharaoh, right? That's where that, that phrase comes up so many times. And it's the first time in the Bible that it comes up. Do you realize that 16 times, 16 times it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart? And only four times does it say that Pharaoh hardened his own heart? That word for hardened hearts in the Greek, it has a, a connotation in that Greek literature of, of marble. You know, marble they make carving out of. And also uh, it has a medical connotation for calcified bones, bones that have just become so rock hard that, that they're dead. Hardened hearts can't grow into Christ-like maturity and they can't help you grow either because they resist the plan of, of revelation of God. They resist his will. We run from that. It has nothing to offer me in the way of spiritual maturity. We don't link ourselves to that because it's just an endless evil, according to verse 19. And they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. Men in their folly believe that we can maintain morality without the God of the Bible. We can still have morality and morals and a moral society without Yahweh. We don't need him to be moral. We don't need him to have a moral culture, a moral subset in any way. We can still be upright without Yahweh. And whether that worldview is some mixture of secularism, atheism, naturalism, or just a false religion, it proves to be universally impossible to maintain any sense of morality without the one true God of the universe. They cannot do it, according to verse 19. They've become callous and given themselves over to sensuality and impurity. I was talking to a brother in India or from India. He's an Indian man in Northern India and he has a network of churches and his area is so hostile that when he gave his report at the network general assembly, they had to turn off the live stream so that he wouldn't be seen on the internet. And he was telling us about what was going on that uh, later in the week that when they were getting, they got donated, Crossway, the publisher donated this guy uh, and his, the, the growing network of churches that he represents in India, uh, like uh, 500 study Bibles but they had to deliver them in the middle of the night because otherwise they would have been beaten. He knows a guy that was beaten to death by his brother and father. 
radical, not radical Islam, this is radical Hinduism in India. But he does a lot of work in Bhutan. Bhutan is just north of India. It shares a border. It's east, Bhutan's east of Nepal. And he said they go over there and it's, it's, a, it's a monolithically Buddhist. But here's the example of if you don't have Yahweh, you have no morality. You would think like, oh, well, you know, at least it's some kind of religion. There's some kind of system of right and wrong. And, you know, it's not great, but they're sincere. He told me, and this is first person account. I talked to him on Thursday morning. He told me that they have an entire temple dedicated to male genitalia. There are statues of it that they bow down to in Bhutan right now. You cannot have any semblance of morality without Yahweh. Otherwise you will be, verse 19, practicing every kind of impurity and you do it greedily. You're after it. You're making statues of this stuff because you have rejected the one true God of the Bible. And they've become, the beginning of the verse says, callous. Callous, you know, like when you get a callous on your fingers for playing guitar or throwing a ball, it gets hard. You can't feel anything there anymore, right? That's what a callous is. Have you noticed that even in our culture today, as we continue the downward spiral of Romans 1, 18 through 32, which is, this is just a subset of, that, that even the pro-abortion world, they don't even have a debate most of the time anymore if it's a baby. They say, so what if it's a baby? We don't care. There's a comedian, Chris Rock, had a, had a thing in his comedy set. He said, we know it's a baby and I don't care. I got a punch card for Planned Parenthood every time I go in. That is callous and given over. How can they be this callous? Because they greedily give themselves to every kind of impurity. They're like the rich young ruler. I love my sin more than anything. Sin makes you stupid and it makes you internally inconsistent. So stop reasoning with unbelievers. Just preach the gospel to them. They can't see it and they don't wanna see it. You have to run from all of this if you will ever be spiritually mature, but how? How could I possibly run from this? If this is who I am before Christ, then something must happen to me in order to be able to not be in this anymore. Well, that's what verses 20 and 21 are about. But you, remember Paul knows who he's writing to, but you, you Ephesian believers who came out of rank, disgusting, heathenistic worldviews in Ephesus. Remember all of the, 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 the uh, pagan temples that are there in the city of Ephesus. You came out of that, but you, you're not like that anymore. You did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as the truth is in Jesus. See, you did not learn Christ in this way. Learn in, that, in, in the original language has a connotation of gaining. You did not gain Christ. Just like, you know, when you learn something, you gain that information. You did not gain Christ in this way. And it doesn't say you didn't learn about Christ. You didn't learn him himself because he is all that we preach, right? We preach Christ and him crucified. I made, I made it to where I knew nothing else among you, Paul says to the Corinthians, except Christ and him crucified. Paul knows who he's talking to. These are Christ's followers. We all need periodic reminders of what we used to be especially if you got saved at a younger age. You didn't have that time uh, by God's grace to live in revelry and sinfulness out in the world. So you need to be reminded of what that mind actually was that you were saved from, 
by God's grace. It's essentially in a sense like this, what Paul does when he, when he has churches go back and learn of this, like he does in Romans and in Galatians and other places, it's essentially like somebody who loses a ton of weight. You keep those humongous pants in the closet and occasionally you go pull them back out. You go, this is what I used to be. And I can fit in one leg now. This is what I used to be. So that you know and fear in the right way, God. These are people Paul's writing to who believe. And how does belief come? Belief comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Romans 10, verse 17. Faith comes by hearing. You can't learn unless you hear. Hearing, you learning carries the concept of gaining. You gain Christ because you heard Christ. And what does that truth do to you? If indeed you have heard of him. So that verse 21, if indeed, it's like I, I, it's, he's, uh, he's supposing it. He's not saying, well, if you have, he's not doubting it. He's saying, I know that you have. I know that you really have. You've come to verse 21, if you indeed have heard from him and have been taught in him just as truth is in Jesus. Do you see that it doesn't say, it doesn't even say the truth or a truth or some truth, just truth. Whatever is true is sourced in Jesus Christ. John 8, 31, 32. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. Free from what? Free from lies, from sin, from death and the devil. Free from the wrath of God. And Jesus is the source of that. We know John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth. He's the truth. He's the embodiment of it, the source of it. If you can, if you are this type of person that highlights or does things in your Bible, then you look at the last phrase of verse 21 and says, truth is in Jesus and run it through with your highlighter, circle it with your red pen, put exclamation points and stars by it. Truth is in Jesus. That's where it is. That's where it's located. Everything from verses 17 and 9 through 19 that existed in you has been completely conquered by Jesus. All of that lies, all of that darkness, all of that futility, all of that callousness has been conquered and undone by Jesus. See, it's just like light and darkness can't occupy the same place. And what always wins if it's a fight between the two? Light always wins. There's no, we have flashlights that distribute light. There's no flash darks that distribute dark. You can't spread darkness. It's what naturally is there until what happens? The lights come on and light always wins. And Jesus is the light, the light of men, John 1 says. So neither can truth and lies occupy the same space at the same time. Truth wins. And if you are in Christ, you are in the truth. And Paul's saying, walk in that truth. Walk in it, live in it. Salvation really is in, in many ways, no less than coming to the truth because you're completely darkened, you're completely callous and hardened and dead and sin and lies. And then salvation is coming to the truth. What is actually true? There actually is a God. He is triune. The second member of that Trinity did indeed condescend and take on flesh in order to be truly God, truly man, sacrifice himself in his humanity on the cross to pay the price for sins that all my who believe in him might be saved. 
See, humanity is just that, a stark binary. You are either dead in sins or alive in Christ. You are either in darkness, stumbling around, or you are walking in light. You are either an enemy of God or a friend of God. You are either perilously ignorant or gloriously learned. You are either in Adam or you are in Christ. There's no halfway Christians. There's no mostly saved people. According to these texts, you are either a child of Satan or you are a child of Yahweh, that's it. Matthew 12, 30, he who is not with me, Jesus says, is against me. And he who does not gather with me scatters. So in order to be saved, to be accepted by God and to be forgiven of your sins, you have to turn from, you have to reject, you have to deny everything that you are and everything that you've believed, how you think, how you function, because it's all lies and all it was doing was condemning you. And then you embrace Christ, the truth, as he really is, then you are brought out of darkness into light, out of death into life. See, conversion to Christ is a radical, meaning down to the roots, radical overhaul of everything that you are. Because naturally, what do these verses say that you are? Feudal, darkened, alienated, ignorant, hard-hearted, callous, overindulgent, impure, and greedy. That's three verses in the New Testament. That's what we are in our natural state. You must be entirely made new. There's nothing left to salvage of you. It's all gotta go. But here's what Jesus does in 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature, a new creation. The old is gone. It's all been taken out. He didn't repurpose any parts. Complete overhaul of who you are New things have come. Praise be to God. That's what he does. He makes sinners new. So friend, you've heard of Jesus and now you've been taught of him. Won't you come to him in humble repentance? Won't you come? Won't you now be forgiven of your sins against him now? Right there at your seat. If you're looking for the truth, it is only in Jesus Paul's making sure that these brothers and sisters in Ephesus are reminded of that because you can't mature unless you're born. And once you're born, verses 20 and 21, then now you can grow. And here's the process of growing, the converted life. Verses 22, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self or a better translation is old man because it's the word anthropos which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit. See, the Christian now, on the other side of conversion, experiences a new and a exceedingly unique tension that wasn't there before. See, before you were in darkness, you were calloused, hardened, ignorant, greedy, all of those things, you sinned and you loved it. There was no problem. I want to do this thing. I will do this thing. That's all I wanna do and I'm gonna do that. But now as a Christian, you have this new tension. You have this new reality. I, I want to do that sin and part of me, but I know that I shouldn't do it. And then when I do it, I feel awful. I didn't used to feel awful. What, 
what is going on here? Before I felt no remorse for sin. I felt no reason to resist the urge to sin or stop sinning, but now I do. All that changed. I I still have the inclination to sin at times, but I don't want, I don't even like that inclination. So what do I do with it? You experience this new tension that you didn't before. This is where Paul brings up this concept that he uses also in the book of Colossians of the old man and the new man. Putting off the old and putting on the new. It's the imagery of, of of a jacket or robe, shirt, putting on the new, taking off the old. Elsewhere, it's, it's like in uh, the book of Galatians, it's pictured as the flesh versus the spirit. Upon your conversion, you were made new, but you were not made perfect. Your old man has been crucified with Christ. Romans 6, 6 couldn't be more clear. You've, you've been crucified with Christ, but that crucified self is still hobbling around in you with a fatal wound. It will die. It's like a copperhead. When you cut the head off of a copperhead, if you step on those fangs in the last, in the next couple of seconds, couple of minutes, they still have venom in them, but it is dead. It still has that venom, but it has been dealt a, a death blow. But here's what we have to avoid. What we're not dealing with here in these verses is kind of some kind of Eastern mystic religious concept of yin and yang. Everybody's got light and dark in them. You have a white dog in you and a black dog in you. Whichever dog you feed, that dog's gonna win. That, that's not what we're talking about here at all. The New Testament flatly rejects this in a place like Romans 6, verse six, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that he w- we would no longer be slaves to sin for he who died is free from sin. And then verse 11, even so consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body. There's a tension. You're dead to sin, but don't let it reign. It's been dealt a death blow. It has a fatal wound, but it's still staggering around. Think of it in the same way that Satan is still staggering around. The cross was the death blow to him, but he's still staggering with this mortal wound until Christ comes again. Verse 13, and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but on the other hand, instead of present yourselves to God as those who are alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Sin will not reign. It won't, it can't. It's been conquered. It's been killed. If you were in Christ at any point, this is the reality that we need to know as Christians at any point in the place of temptation or in the action of sinning, you can just walk away. An unbeliever cannot do that because it's still in slavery to that sin. At any point in the temptation, there is no point of no return. You could be right about to do the sin. Your heart's already done it. And you could just drop it right there and walk away because you're a new creature. You don't need a 12-step process. You don't need any of these things. You just need to stop. Just quit and walk off because you can. Because the spirit of God is not in a struggle with the, the spirit of this world. He won. It's over. You just walk in that victory. We are to engage daily as Christians in the action of laying aside the old man like a filthy shirt. You take it off every day. You lay it down and then you put on the sparkling new man. 
like this, this celestial robe. And every time you sin prior to that, you know what you did? You decided to take off that celestial robe and put on that dirty old shirt. That's what happened beforehand. But we need to instead be like Isaiah 61, 10, this picture of justification when it says, I will rejoice greatly in the Lord. My soul will exult in my God for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. He has wrapped me with a robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with a garland and as a bride adorns herself with jewels. That robe of righteousness, that garment of salvation, we put that on. We wear that around and we are renewed, verse 23, that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. See, we are having to daily, as those pursuing maturity who are in Christ, we're having to daily be renewed. This is an ongoing process that you will never be done with until you die or Christ comes. Romans 12, two is where it's most famously noted amongst us and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may be able to prove that the will of God is that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. This is a daily discipline in growing in maturity. I'm renewing myself. I'm aligning myself with the truth and distinguishing between what is lies because I have that ability now. Your mind's pathways, they need to be rearranged and redirected. I once heard it pictured like this. You think of it, uh, the, uh, the old school glass Coke bottles and you have a bit of rigid wire and you're just shoving that wire into that Coke bottle, right? And it, it's that wire that when you bend it, it holds its shape, right? So you're shoving it in. So your life before Christ was you're being shoved in, that, that wire shoved into that glass bottle. And then when you get born again by repenting of sin and trusting in Christ, that bottle gets shattered but what shape is that wire still in? It's in the shape of a Coke bottle. So the rest of your life is spent straightening out that wire, unbending it, because you've been bent and, and conformed to this world. You need to be transformed, straightening that wire out. Not only do the pathways of our minds need to be rearranged and redirected, but the waterways of our hearts Ann and I, years ago, we used to work at a camp and the camp built this lake, like a six acre lake to be able to swim and do cable wakeboarding and stuff on. And it had a dam on the back end. And one of the big things when we were putting it in, they were talking about was you have to watch out for what's called rilling on the backside of the dam. Rilling as if you've ever seen where water runs and it starts making those, those gouges. And on a slope, if you get rilling, then and the water starts going to the deepest one, then you can pop the dam and it runs out. So what we're doing then as Christians is noting that we already have rilling from our darkened previous state. And we are working on fixing the damming those up and redirecting that water to go in the way of godliness. It's an active work that we do. So how does this happen? It happens simply, we'll get into it more next week, but it happens simply just by the ordinary means of grace. You know what I mean when I say that? Ordinary means of grace, it's just the word, prayer, and corporate worship. Come to church. John 17, 17, Jesus prays for his disciples, sanctify them and the truth, your word is truth. You can't be sanctified without the scriptures. You can't be sanctified without being in this book and this book getting into you. 
That's where it has to happen. So you start with Bible reading, a privilege that was not had by our brothers and sisters in Christ more than 500 years ago. But you have that privilege. So what's keeping you from it? Study, not just reading it, but studying it, meditating on it, memorizing scripture, and then personal prayer, spending time in prayer, growing in prayer, family worship. Get your family around the table and get into the word together. It takes 15 minutes. Read a chapter, ask a couple questions, sing a song, pray every day as best you can. Corporate worship, where we come together, we hear the preaching of the word, we sing together as the, the collected body and assembly of saints, take the sacraments, the ordinances of the Lord's Supper and baptism. You gotta think about how could you expect maturity in any other way? If you won't give yourself over to this, if you want the renewing of your mind with the scriptures, then why would, that ever, why would anything else work? What physical body thrives off of meager food? Just little crumbs here and there. None. What physical body thrives off of no sleep, no active rest? None. What physical body slives or uh, thrives off of no exercise, straining and growing, building muscle? None. So what then do we do? Verse 24, we put on the new self, the new man, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. So we engage in putting on the robe that Christ made for you. This is where we have to, to come and settle as Christians, that this is who we are, not who we're trying to be. Salvation is not something that we continually earn. It wasn't a mere foundation that was laid. You were born into a family. This is who you are. You're being called to here, just live like who you are. You weren't born again and God handed you a dirty old shirt and a robe of righteousness, the old man and the new man and said, here, but I need you to wear this one all the time. No, he threw that one away and put the robe of righteousness on you. You just keep going, digging it out. But this is who you actually are. We were supposed to wear this new man daily. What did God create you new in? What did he create you new in? What does it say? Verse 24 the truth, the truth that is righteous and holy. Do you wanna imitate Jesus's righteousness and Jesus's holiness? If you say no, then friend, you're not a Christian. So we all say, yes, I wanna imitate Jesus's righteousness and Jesus's holiness. How do I do that? Well, verse 24 would tell us to put on the truth, to walk in the truth, to seek out the truth. The Christian life is one marked by righteousness, holiness, and truth. Because if it's true, then it is righteous and it is holy. We should not expect anything different. We shouldn't pursue anything different. The mature Christian is righteous and holy with a hungry love for the truth. The true Christian says, I cannot get enough of the truth. If you're giving it away, I'm gonna be there. And we in our day have the most embarrassment of riches you could ever ask for. All you have to do is pick up the devil's rectangle and you can get any kind of truth you want. All you gotta do is pick it up, click it on, and you can get it all the time. They're just people are just giving it away. 
videos and audio and, and PDFs that are free online, books that, that men training for the ministry used to have to walk miles to read pieces of and then leave there and walk back. You get for free. Instruction training, let alone this, that we can have, uh, how many digital versions are on the YouVersion Bible app? For free. We must be a people who seek the truth if we will grow in, unright- grow in righteousness, if we will grow in spiritual maturity, but well, that involves putting off the old man and putting on the new man. So let me conclude with this. In Pilgrim's Progress, you guys know I talk about it all the time. It, Christian life is pictured as a journey, a walk from the city of destruction to the celestial city. So from this life to life to come. And the main character is named Christian, but he's joined by a man along the way whose name is Faithful. And when he gets Faithful, when Faithful joins up with him, they start kind of talking about their conversions and what it's like. They don't call it conversion, but that's what it was. What moment did the burden come off of your back, which is the weight of sin, the weight of guilt, the wrath of God falls off your back at the cross and it falls into a coffin and the lid closes and you never see it again. But then they start talking about the journey that far. And they've gone through some things by that point. They've gone through the slew of despond, which is just this marsh of despair that you fall in picturing our depression and, and, and uh, the darkness, the attacks that happened to us before we get saved. He's gone through the valley of the shadow of death. He's fought with, with Satan, fought with Apollyon. And, and then he's gone through the hill difficulty and he tells faithful his stories. And then faithful starts telling him his stories. A little bit different because everybody's Christian experience is different. But faithful, when he gets to hill difficulty, he tells Christian this. He says, I was approached by an old man when I got to the hill and he came to me and he was very complimentary, complimenting my my strength and my vigor and and how I'm walking along this way. and, And he wants to offer me things, offer me wages, money. He offers me delights and he offers me his three daughters in marriage. Right off the bat, you can marry my three daughters. And then he asks them their names. What are the names of your three daughters? The names of the three daughters are the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. So then Faithful starts figuring out who is this old man offering me this stuff that seems too good to be true, but yet I'm kind of inclined to go with this man. Then he finds out that that old man's from a town called Deceit. And that's where he wants him to go live in a town called Deceit. And then he finally asks him his name and his name is Adam the first. Meaning the picture being there, we are either in Adam or in Christ. Christ is the second, the true and better Adam we sing. And he's still even after he learns all that, he's like, I'm inclined to go. But then he looks at Adam the first's forehead and because faithful is actually born again, he sees written across Adam, the first forehead, it says, put off the old man with his deeds. And so then he wakes up and realizes what's actually happening. And then he runs and leaves that place. That's what's happening to us. The old man is constantly coming and saying, come with me. I got wages for you, money, payment for you, delights for you. Uh, people for you, place to be for you. Any sin is offering you those things. 
but we need to see written across its forehead, put off the old man and put on the new. First John 1, 5, 5 through 7, or First John 1, 5 through 7 says, this is the message we have heard from him, meaning Jesus, and announced to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. That's what we're after. And now specifically you may ask, okay, I know I gotta put off the old and put on the new, but how do I do that? You gotta come back next week because we're out of time. <laughs> That's where we're gonna leave it today. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we, we hear the call or we hear this clearly to not walk in those ways of darkness, of callousness, uh, of, of depravity of mind, hardness of heart, greediness for sin. And we know that the only way is to come through Christ that he is not merely just an avenue. He is the destination. He is the means. He is all things that pertain to life and godliness. Lord, we, we know that. And so we ask that you would help us to put off the old and put on the new. We, we know how that old shirt feels. We know where the holes are. We know that, yeah, it's a little bit dirty and it can appeal to us for the familiarity of it for the, the simplicity of it, for the lies that it tells. Help us to hate that dirty old garment, that old self. Or let us long, stir in us a longing to wear the dazzling, brilliant robe of righteousness that was Christ's that you gave to us upon our repentance and faith, that we are wrapped in his robe of righteousness so that we can stand before you and not be condemned. But then wearing that robe is our only hope for maturity, for pressing on into spiritual maturity. Lord, help us to do that. Help us to help each other to do that. Lord, may we not ever be a, uh, a condemnatory people that are constantly looking for flaws in each other, but Lord, may we not also be cowards who live and let live when it comes to sin. May we lovingly address our brothers and sisters and expect to be lovingly addressed by them when they can see that we're wearing that old garment. May we love that, that pointing out, that correction that we can take it off and throw it far from us and put on that robe of righteousness. And may we extend grace upon grace to each other as we all walk down this path or that we stumble on it, we get sidetracked on it, we fall asleep on it. We lose the awareness of your promises, of these realities that we just looked for. Or, but let us never, and we know you will never let us lose those promises in reality. That you will never let your chosen ones, your sons and your daughters fall asleep and be left out of the celestial city. You will bring us all the way home because that is what you did from before the foundations of the world. Father, give us encouragement in a, in a text like this that is much to say for our action, our engagement in the Christian life. May we move beyond, but not skip the education of our minds, the transforming of our minds. May it move into our hearts to where we not only know it, but we love it. 
and may it come out of our hands that we know and love what we want for everybody else who does not yet know you. Lord God, we thank you so much for this fellowship of believers, for the time we've spent this afternoon. We are grateful for your mercy, your grace, for your love, for your clarity, for your truth, and for your power. And it's through that power that we have accessed in Christ that we pray to you. Amen.